Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why, Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be asking why we need a new translation of the Hebrew Bible with our guest, Robert Alter. When I need my students to understand that they don't really know as much as they think they do, I talk to them about religion. I tell them what the Immaculate Conception actually is. Only the conservatively educated Catholics know that. I reference the verses that seem to support rather than reject abortion. And to really put the hammer down, I explain to them that the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament are not the same thing. That's the bit they have the hardest time with. The Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible each contain a different number of books that are organized in dissimilar ways. They're presented in different orders. Their translations are not the same. And most important, one does not read Isaiah or any of the Hebrew scriptures as prefiguring Christ. This is an abstract and difficult idea. How we encounter a text changes the book itself, not just our perceptions of it. Lolita is a very different novel if we treat Humbert Humbert as an unreliable narrator. Uncle Tom's Cabin becomes its own opposite when we read through a modern sensibility. The Hebrew Scriptures is a text without a Messiah, an open-ended exploration that lacks both redemption and a well-defined destination. The Old Testament, in contrast, is a prelude to its own supersession. It is written to be replaced, and its narrative describes an inevitable trajectory that the earlier book can't make sense of. What all of this reveals is that most people approach the Bible from a dual perspective— They're both intimately familiar with details and profoundly unsophisticated readers. They have little awareness of the choices the authors and editors make, nor do they engage with the tensions that drive translators to pick one word or phrase over another. Even the most obsessive adherents, the religious folks who notate their Bibles, memorize the passages, and quote when they think appropriate, tend to relate to it without acknowledging how deep its complexity goes. They're glorifying a book for its aphorisms and conclusions, not its apparatus or the rationality of those who constructed it. I don't want to suggest that this is bad. It's just how things work. It's how people use their histories to motivate themselves personally, politically, and morally. Religion is what it is. Individual denominations are what they are. None of them would exist if sacred scriptures were not malleable. If there were just one objective interpretation, if there were only a single way of understanding these texts— Neither Judaism nor Christianity nor Islam nor Buddhism would have lasted very long. The very fact that there are Orthodox and Reformed Jews, Episcopalians and Anabaptists, Sunni and Shiite is, if you'll pardon the pun, a testament to just how many decisions were made before our scriptures were handed down to us. With all of that said, today's episode is about the Hebrew Bible, not any other text and not about religion in general. Our question ostensibly is one of motivation. We're going to ask why our guest thought we needed a new translation of a book that already has more versions than any of us will ever read. Underneath this, though, are more complex ones. How does one present a tradition to its adherents in a novel way while still celebrating their commitments? How does one translate a Bible to people who already assume they know it? There are, I would suggest, two opposing themes that we'll return to throughout our discussion. The first is that of authenticity. However one chooses to translate the Bible, it must be in line with the best scholarship so far, and it has to be respectful of the multitudes who saw the book as giving their lives meaning. Anachronisms, modern references that would feel foreign to the Hebrews and Israelites, 
has very little place in a respectful translation, even if the Jews of today are indeed the direct descendants of those portrayed in the book. At the same time, the translator must engage in what artists refer to as making strange. If the result is not somehow different and does not teach us new things, then what's the point? Why would someone devote an entire lifetime of scholarly work to make a thin facsimile of that which has come before? How does one make the Hebrew scriptures new? God, that's an interesting question. How does one do it while keeping it the Bible? That, none of you need to be told, is a monumental task. In the end, we're going to be asking three related questions. Why create a new translation? How does one include the readers in the product? And how does one modify the lens through which we view both the text and ourselves? Individually, these are daunting tasks, but collectively, They seem so overwhelming that maybe it's not unreasonable to hope for divine intervention. And now our guest. Robert Alter is the class of 1937 professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California at Berkeley. He's published 22 books, including most recently, A Complete Translation of the Hebrew Bible. Robert, thanks for joining us on Why. I'm very glad to be here. If you'd like to comment on the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Y Radio Show, one word, or email us at asky at und.edu. You can listen to all of our previous episodes for free and find information about our future shows at yradioshow.org. So, Robert, translating the Bible on your own, challenging not only the Hebrew Bible found in every synagogue, but the King James Version, that seems a little daunting. Is it? Well, I think I was not daunted by it, not by the predecessors. My point of departure was as follows. The Hebrew Scripture is, in most respects, a beautifully wrought set of literary texts. Um, there are places that are flat. There, are, There's boilerplate stuff here and there. But it is quite remarkable. And I don't understand why it is that this dinky little kingdom sandwiched in between great empires in the ancient Near East turned out to to have literary geniuses, but it did. And these writers decided that they, of course, their motivation was religious, but they decided to cast their monotheistic vision in beautiful narrative, and at times magnificent poetry. So my contention is that that none of the previous translations, with the partial exception of the King James Version, about which I could talk, uh, do justice to the literary vehicle of the Hebrew Bible, and that's what I set out to do. I was actually quite surprised when reading the introduction to uh, the Bible, your, your Bible that you actually speak quite highly of the King James, whereas my understanding is that it takes a lot of artistic liberty, that it's not very accurate. At least that's the story that comes to me. What works and what doesn't in the King James and was that your um, – is that sort of a, the benchmark or do you start from scratch? Well. Mostly I start from scratch, but there there is a a partial qualification to that. That is, the King James Version is, of course, uh, riddled with mistakes. 
And that's because the, the understanding of biblical Hebrew in among 17th century Christian Hebraists was far from what it is today in scholarly circles. It also um, translates sometimes intentionally, I think sometimes almost unconsciously, it translates many key terms with a kind of Christological uh, tendency. And that means for our audience that it has an eye towards the Christian interpretation as opposed to the Hebrew interpretation. Uh, right. Um, but the, the King James Version had two things going for it, which uh, its modern successors do not. First, uh, th this group of, I think it's 40 some odd um, translators, learned divines who knew Hebrew, of course, Latin, Greek, Aramaic, many of them knew Arabic. These translators, convened by uh, King James, had a rather good grasp uh, of literary English. Uh, Lancet Andrews, the most influential among them, was the Bishop of London, I believe, and we have his sermons, and he was a, a great prose stylist. So that gets into the translation. The other thing that, that's admirable about the King James Version is um, that it's very literal, which tends to, uh, in a way that th they were literal because they thought this is the word of, the God, of God. God put the words in this order. You don't mess with that. But in fact, that helped them, especially in, in the narrative prose, to um, produce an English version which had a good many of the virtues of the Hebrew. I want to talk in a minute more about the Bible itself and the translation, but I'm curious about being a translator and, and philosophies of translation. First, how translatable are languages. I mean, in, 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 there's a tradition in, in Islam that you can't translate the Quran, that it's just untranslatable because the word is literal word of God, uh, the, the letters like in Hebrew, the, the letters are very meaningful. If I look at German and English, if I look at Italian and Spanish, can I create one-to-one -one correspondences or is the best a translator can do analogous words and phrases? I think the latter alternative is generally the case. Let's take, for example, uh, um, Flaubert, a, a great French stylist. Um, and I've paid a lot of attention in my career to his, his mastery of, of the French. Now, it is so elegant and so precise that you really can't quite get the same thing in another language. For example, the, there's a kind of aphoristic pithiness in, in some of Flaubert's writings, and that's hard to get in, in, in English. Nevertheless, we, we know that, that millions of readers uh, over the decades have read Madame Bovary and, and see it as a great novel. So. Not everything comes across, but somehow a good deal comes across. Do you find, again, as, as sort of I've heard, that some languages are more 
uh, are better designed for other tasks. I've heard German is a great language for science. English and Arabic are great languages for poetry. Did the languages themselves have those sorts of limitations or is it the practitioners that that make or break the language's ability? I think it's more the practitioners than the language because uh, saying that, say, um, German is the perfect language for abstract thought and actually in 19th century German language theorists said it was only in the Germano uh, Indian languages, uh, the Germano-Aryan languages, uh, that you could produce abstract thought, and you couldn't do it in Hebrew. Uh, and I think that's kind of nonsensical. Uh, so it, each writer in, in a given language uses his or her resources, artistic resources, to make the the maximum use uh, of the optimal use uh, of, of uh, the intrinsic qualities uh, of the language. What, when someone says something like, oh, Italian is such a beautiful sounding language and some people think that Hebrew and German are, are sort of uglier because they're more guttural languages, is that just personal preference or does that just have is, – is there something to that? Is there a sort of fluidity that, that languages have that speak to the human imagination? Well, I think it's mostly cultural prejudice. That is, for example, in English, we don't have gutturals. So to our ear, languages that have um, many gutturals, and of course Dutch would be the extreme, uh, sound grating to a certain extent. But I don't think they sound grating to, to, the, uh, to the native speakers. And if a certain cultural stereotype, say, types German as a harsh language and a grating language, if you've ever heard a native speaker um, recite a poem by Rilke in German, you can say, you can hear it as beautifully mellifluous. Is the Robert Alter who hears and reads Hebrew different than the Robert Alter that hears and reads English? I mean, in, in, can, you, can you enter into that flexible cultural space and say, this is beautiful to my Hebrew ears and this is uh, not so beautiful to my English ears? Does, does – I mean, philosophically, I'm sort of asking about the question of, of, of language and identity, but how hard is it for the translator to, to enter into the perspective of the language that they're engaged in at any one moment? Well, if you know the language really well, I think you can enter into the perspective. And I've known Hebrew really well since my mid-teens. And when I say Hebrew, I mean um, rabbinic Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, and, and modern Hebrew. And I actually do a lot of work on modern Hebrew uh, literature. My sense of the two languages as a translator is that it's an opportunity for me to conduct every man's fantasy uh, uh, two simultaneous love affairs. <laughs> a love affair with biblical Hebrew, the, 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 with that language, and a love affair w with the English language. And I would quickly add that the reason why 
the modern English versions are, are really pretty disastrous is that this, the translators of scholarly committees uh, love neither the Hebrew language nor the English language. That is, they approach the, the Hebrew language as an object of research, and of course research is important, but not as something that they love, not as something where they can respond to its beautiful resonances. And, uh, and then, unlike the King James people, they don't have much sense of literary English today. And so what often emerges are English versions that are unidiomatic, that are awkward, that are grotesque, that, that are, uh, sound gratingly contemporary, and so forth. It sounds as if you're describing a picture that runs counter to what a lot of people think of as translation. A lot of people think of translation as sort of a rote science, sort of instantaneous translation where this is what they're being said and we're going to find the closest equivalent. But you seem to be describing translation as more of an art than a science. Absolutely. That is, it, it of course depends on what kind of what kind of text you're translating. If you're translating, um, oh, you know, a, a manual for uh, assembling uh, an electric motor, then uh, your only consideration is to be absolutely precise in every one of the terms that you choose, or that motor is not going to work. Uh, on the other hand, when you're translating a, a literary text, and most of the, the biblical books are preeminently li literary texts, uh, you have to first recognize the artfulness, uh, the beauty, the subtlety of the original, and then try to find ways to uh, shape that into uh, some kind of English equivalent. This is going to be a little bit of an odd question, but you, you talk about the love that you have for the languages and that previous people um, may not have had that same relationship. How does one make oneself worthy of engaging in the language this, in this manner? I mean, I don't want to suggest that it's a moral test per se, especially since we're dealing with religion in some sense here. But there does seem to be a minimal standard for you of what it means to be a good translator. Is that just something that happens over time? Is that a, a, a characterological um, characteristic of yourself? How do you know that you've reached that point where you can treat the language with the attention and the affection that it deserves? Well, Chris, first you have to know the language very well. And uh, we could later on, perhaps if you'd like, get into issues of uh, where I think uh, even the, the modern scholars with all, all their academic training don't know biblical Hebrew well enough. Um, then, um, because these are literary texts, most of them anyway, uh, you, uh, you have to be someone who's immersed in literature, which for better or for worse, I have been for my whole life, uh, which means you both respond to the, <clears throat> to the literary art of the original uh, and 
you have some sense, you know, w whether you've been reading James Joyce or Wallace Stevens or, or, or Seamus Heaney, you have some sense of what can be done with the English language to get at an English equivalent of the original. Maybe I'll give you a specific example because we, we have not really cited any examples so far. When I began translating Genesis, I got to the verse in chapter one where the um, uh, creation of the heavenly luminaries is reported. Now, most translations say uh, something like that the the greater light, he created the greater light to uh, rule over the day or to govern the day. The, the worst of these tr modern translations is the Jewish Publication Society, which is the, the lights to dominate the day. And of course, that, that shows a tin ear for English. So that, that is, uh, the Soviet Union dominated the smaller <laughs> states of Eastern Europe. You do, the sun and the moon don't dominate the day. I see my point. Um, but uh, here, here's what happened as I discovered something as I was translating. Uh, I rendered this as follows. And the great, he created the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. And I said, wait a minute, why did I choose that word dominion? I said, well, first of all, because it's a noun derived from the verb to dominate. And uh, the Hebrew is not, as everybody translates it, a, uh, an infinitive, but actually a verbal noun. But then I realized that there was a more important reason. The Hebrew sounds like this. I'm, I'll, with your permission, I'll recite <laughs> Please, this in Hebrew. Please, of course. Et ha-maor ha-gadol l'memshelet ha-yom, v'et ha-maor ha-katon l'memshelet ha-layla, v'et ha-kochavim. And suddenly I realized there's a beautiful cadence there. And the cadence is not a trivial thing. That is the priestly writer responsible for, for this version of, of creation, sees creation as a beautiful, orderly sequence of events, something that's almost choreographed. And the, uh, the lovely rhythm of that uh, sentence is uh, an inscribing in sound of his sense of beautiful order. So when I translated for dominion of day, for dominion of night, I, I was replicating the Hebrew cadence, which sounds like this, the memshelet hayom, or the memshelet halayla. You hear it's the same cadence. And I felt good about that. Can you identify a translator from the translation in the way that you can identify a musician? I hear Miles Davis's uh, trumpet, and I know it's Miles Davis. Ah, uh, yeah. Can you can, can, I, I, you mentioned the Hebrew Publication Society uh, edition. That's the edition of the Tanakh that I got for my bar mitzvah, and and right, it's been on right. my shelf. And and then I read yours, actually, the uh, your Genesis. I was at a conference which used yours, and it was a revelation. I mean, in the, I mean, almost in the literal sense, right? Yeah. And um, and it was so beautiful. When someone reads that, do they say, Ah, that's Robert? I'd know Robert's work anywhere. 
Well, no, because, look, I'm unusual as an academic writer because I care about my prose. That, that is, if, as I assume you do, you read articles in, in learned journals. Oh, they're brutal. Yeah, they're brutal. <laughs> uh, uh, aside from the fact that they often use professional jargon, academic jargon, uh, they, the attitude of most academic writers toward language is it's purely instrumental. It's a vehicle for conveying my ideas on this subject, for Kant's philosophy of knowledge or for the origins of the novel or whatever. For reasons that I suppose do have to do with my character, from the get-go, from the time I began publishing articles as a graduate student, I found that writing for me was a craft, that I, I, there was something in me that loved to shape sentences, to listen to the cadences of what I was writing, and to choose uh, apt uh, images and so forth. Now, uh, if you look at, at any of my writing on literature, let's say uh, my book on Stendhal, uh, many things that I've written on the book off and so forth. Uh, I think you'll, I would hope you'll see good writing, but it doesn't sound anything like uh, my translation of the Bible. That, that is, the, the, the writing on literature, that's Robert Alter, I <laughs> grant that. The prose and the poetry in the, my translation of the Bible is an attempt to get an English equivalent that will sound something like the Hebrew. Um, I, I want to interrupt for just yeah. a second because we have sure. to take a break. Um, I will say, and I, I, I hope it will make you feel good as I intended, that when I was reading the introduction to, to the Bible in bed, I turned to my wife and said, it's not surprising. Robert Alter is a great writer. <laughs> so so oh, that, great. That, that is Thank that you. is great. When we come back, I want to dive right into the the, the actual um, translation process of the Bible and look at it more, more details. But for the moment, you're listening to Robert Alter and Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I'm talking with Robert Alter about his translation of the Hebrew Bible. And as I was preparing to talk about this with Robert, my mind went back to graduate school. And I'm a political philosopher by trade, as long-term listeners know. I'm an Adam Smith scholar, as long-term listeners know. But I took a lot of different courses and – I took a course on Maimonides, a great rabbinical uh, sage uh, from about the 
uh, I've forgotten the dates, <laughs> 16th, 17th century. And that's going to re- – actually, no, earlier than that because he's Aquinas. Robert will tell me in a second. But anyway, this reveals the embarrassing fact that I'm going to tell you, which is that of all of the classes I took, I did the worst in Maimonides. Oh, wow. I, I, and I was too young because – Part of what Maimonides is doing is his in his Guide for the Perplexed is talking about what the words say and what the words mean. And as a 22-year-old punk rocker, my attitude was, why doesn't he just say what he means? Why can't he be a mensch, right? And I, if I could go back and take one course again, I would take that one. And so, Robert, the first question I want to ask when we talk about the process of translation is, how much of your attention is on the message and how much of your attention is on the text? And when you detect a subtext or a code or the kind of things that Maimonides is talking about, which is there is a whole level of lesson for the learned, how much do you pay attention to that? How do you balance the content and the form? Well, uh, I don't see any split between the the, the – content and the form. And in fact, I'm somewhat uncomfortable with uh, applying the word message to uh, the Bible. I know there was um, a a kind of very vernacular translation of both Testaments done a few years ago by a, a, a pastor named Peterson. And he decided it was a great marketing move not to call it uh, the Bible or the Holy Bible or Holy Scripture, he entitled his translation The Message. Mm-hmm. And uh, that may be all right uh, to get across to evangelical circles, but it's no way that I can see the Bible. So um, I would say that um, you can't separate the content from the form. For example, let's take Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, the original Isaiah, there there are other um, prophets whose work is appended to his. The original Isaiah was a great poet. And he used this poetry to, and all its resources, to convey his perception uh, of the, the, the moral turpitude of the people of Israel and why they needed to, to change their ways. So, one thing he did, and he does it repeatedly, is he took two Hebrew terms that sound alike but are opposite in meaning. Uh, and he yoked them together and said in his line of poetry that the, they, they took X and turned it into Y for for. Example, in chapter 5 of Isaiah, there's uh, – I'll just quote the beginning of the the verse. He he says, uh, and he, the he being God, and he hoped for justice, and the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, and look, a blight, and the word for blight is mispach. So you hear mishpat, mispach, two words that are close in sound and dead opposite in, in meaning. So I thought that to, to get the punch of Isaiah's prophecy, you had to find an English equivalent. So I came up with 
you don't always succeed, but I came up with, <laughs> and he looked for, then he hoped for justice and look jaundice. Oh, interesting. And that's not a literal connection, but it gets both the 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 content uh, and the flavor, the, the the music of it. Right? You 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 say that that biblical Hebrew has a very musical quality to it. Right. Can you talk for a second about that? What what does that mean for for or or or, or just elaborate on that a little bit? And 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 how do you preserve that musicality? Okay, uh, I would say one of the you can't always preserve it, uh, and um, I would admit that in these three thousand pages of translation with commentary, th- there are moments that I think probably are a little clunky, where I couldn't find a good solution. I mean, a- any translator of a great work who thinks that that, that the work has been totally conveyed in the target language is suffering serious delusion. But um, I, I think often uh, I, I got close to what I was uh, aspiring uh, to do. So uh, one of the, the important features of biblical Hebrew exploited in both the prose and the poetry is that it's very compact. It's much more compact than um, than uh, modern English. Uh, first, you, you, uh, th- there are not uh, many polysyllabic words, uh, and then uh, you often don't need to use pronouns. You tell you know the pronominal subject of a verb by the way it's conjugated, and the object of the verb, if it's a pronoun, is just tacked on to the end uh, as uh, a um, uh, a suffix. And then th- there's no verb to be in the present tense. It's just understood. So the Lord is my shepherd. That's fine in, in the King James Version, and I follow that. Uh, it, it's just uh, two words in, in the Hebrew, Adonai Roi, because you don't need the is. Um, so one of the things, and of course this is especially important in the poetry, because the, the, the rhythms are compact rhythms. And what I tried to do as a translator was to tamp down the English language, to eliminate unnecessary words, to um, choose uh, compact words, if possible, uh, monosyllabic words, to get at something of the rhythm of the Hebrew. I'll give you one very small example. In Psalm 30, there is uh, the beginning of a verse reads, one verse reads like this, what profit is there in my blood? Now, that's a perfectly accurate translation, but it it wrecks the rhythm of the line. That, that is, you can hear what profit is in there in my blood uh, is, um, is really arrhythmic. Now, uh, the Hebrew sounds like this, ma, you can hear the, the powerful beat of the, the rhythm. And if you look in most editions of the King James Version, you'll see that the is there is italicized. Why is it italicized? Because they italicize, actually it was a different font in the, the, the 17th century, they italicize words that are only implied in the Hebrew, but not 
explicitly stated in the Hebrew. Now, it dawned on me uh, immediately that you don't need these words. That is, if you trans, if you drop out the is there, you come up with the following, which I did. What prophet in my blood, which is perfectly coherent mm. and is exactly like ma betza bidami. So that's the kind of maneuver that I found myself repeatedly doing, and I, I don't think previous translators at all have bothered with that. I can hear the beauty in your version that doesn't exist in the King James, and it also refers back to something that, that you've remarked in your, transla- in, in your introduction, which says that one of the great her- unacknowledged heresies of previous Bibles is that they're trying to explain the Bible via their translation. What does that mean, and why is that a problem? Well, I think that there's a kind of dumbing down of the audience of Bible readers. I like to respect audiences. I mean, not to be excessively difficult, but to respect their fundamental intelligence. So let me give you one example. Many of the modern translators assume astoundingly that modern readers cannot understand metaphors. So what do they do? Uh, They they translate the metaphor into what they think the metaphor refers to. Now, linguistically, this is dead wrong. I mean, we use metaphors all the time. We say, throw in the towel, off the, the rails, and so on and so forth. Here's an example. When Joseph's brothers first come down to Egypt and uh, they, of course, do not recognize him, he looks like an Egyptian and he's the second most powerful man in in Egypt, he accuses them of being spies. And here's how he accuses them in, in my translation, to see the nakedness of the land you have come. Now, Several modern translations get rid of the metaphor of nakedness. They say something like, you've come to spy out the weak points in our defense, which is explaining the original rather than translating it. And I think something serious is lost. That is, to see the nakedness, and many... um, unscholarly readers of the Bible will recognize this right away, uh, is as in you shall not see your mother's nakedness. It's associated with taboo sexuality. And so it's a very potent image. You know, you have come down here to, to look at what no alien should ever be able to see. And you lose all that if if you turn this uh, powerful metaphor into the weak points of our defense. But it seems also you lose something else, which is the history of the idea of nakedness in the Bible. Right? Adam and Eve are naked, and that's okay at first. And so it would seem to me, right? And I am not an expert in any way, but it would seem to me that when you encounter that word. There's always going to be that 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 retention of well, there was a time when nakedness is okay, and it's not anymore. It, it it feels like it not only doesn't respect the language, but it also doesn't respect the holistic approach to the Bible. Does does, does that make sense? 
Yeah, except, no, I, I would offer one qualification here, that, that the word for nakedness in the Adam and Eve story is, is actually a different Hebrew word. Uh, the word eriah, which is used in the, the Joseph story, is specifically uh, a word having to do with uh, the, the nakedness of, of exposed sexual parts. However, uh, I think you're on the right track in another sense, uh, that nakedness is a kind of theme in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and uh, some of the prophets will get onto this, uh, Ezekiel, for example, uh, and they, they will describe the, the shaming of Israel for its sins uh, as uh, the exposing of nakedness. Uh, usually it's a woman's nakedness. So so I guess that leads me to two different questions. The first is does, does the precision and the attention that you offer uh, when you're translating it, does it eclipse, does it delegitimize sort of amateurish analysis like the one I offered, right? I offered an analysis. It was wrong for – very understandable reasons or at least we'll say it wasn't 100 percent correct, right? For very understandable reasons, yet the Bible is a book that has thrived on amateurish interpretation. So, so, so the first question is, does, does, does this preclude that kind of thing? It, does, does it demand an expert's eye to such an extent that the, that the amateur loses their place? And then the second, uh, which is a different topic, is you spend some time talking about how the bodily metaphor is very important in the Bible and very important in Hebrew. And so if you're unaware of these subtleties, is it just something that you get to discover as you get older or do you miss an incredibly important element to the text when you don't know all of the things going on? I think you do miss an important uh, element to the text. As far as, far the, as the role of the the amateur, um, yeah, I, I don't think that that uh, uh, mistaken notions ascribed to the Bible by a, an, an amateur uh, <clears throat> would be anything that I would want to underwrite or preserve. Uh, I do feel, if I can replace the, the word amateur by a, another term, one made famous by uh, Virginia Woolf, uh, the common reader, hmm. I do aim my translation at the, the common reader, and I want to make more of what's going on in, in the Hebrew accessible and bring things into focus in a way uh, that they haven't been before. Let me give you one example. I'm perhaps a little notorious for the fact that I totally resist using the word soul, S-O-U-L, in my translation. And that's because there is no uh, notion in biblical Hebrew of a soul. The word nefesh, translated as soul, means something like life breath. And by extension, in one direction, life, you know, a person's life. And in another direction, by... Um, uh, what we, we literary types call metonymy, that is, things are likened to each other because they're in contact, they're in contiguity with each other. It can mean 
throat or neck, as famously, uh, and other translators in the modern era have gotten this right, um, uh, in Psalms, uh, in the King James Version, the waters have come up even into my soul. Well, what did that mean? Whereas the Hebrew, it's actually an image of drowning, and it means the waters have come up to my neck. Hmm. But let me give you another example where I think I, I depart from uh, the moderns as well as the, the, the King James Version. In um, one of the Psalms, I think it might be 68, but sometimes I get the numbers wrong, uh, the speaker says in, in almost all the English versions, um, uh, my soul yearns for you, O God, in a uh, parched land without water. Now, uh, that's beautiful, but I don't think it's what the Hebrew says. This goes back to your remark about the embodiedness uh, of the, the biblical language. Um, if you look at the context, parched land without water, and uh, in the parallel second half of the verse, we have flesh paralleling the word that's represented as, as soul, uh, I think in all likelihood, and that's the way I translated it, it means my throat. My throat yearns for you, O God, in a parched land without water. Now, that's a little startling, but I think it has its own power, maybe not the elegance of my soul uh, and the, the theological uh, resonance of my soul yearns for you, but um, I think that's, that's what it is. And that is a very small instance of my effort to bring the Hebrew into sharper focus in the English. Okay, so here then would be a concern that I would imagine someone might have, and I wonder how you as translator would respond. Someone says, okay, I understand the argument that you made and it's very good but you lose part of the mysticism of it all and the mysticism is essential to the tradition. Do you think that this approach loses part of that religiosity and if you did think that, would it concern you or given the fact that you're just looking at it as a literary text, you're just going to look at the book itself rather than the meaning that the book may have for other people? No, I don't think that, that the, the religious dimension of the Bible is in any way lost by my procedures. Rather, you get a different kind of religiosity. That is, it's a religious sense of the world that's anchored in the body. For example, in Ecclesiastes, which like most modern scholars I prefer to call by its Hebrew name Kohelet, we have the famous vanity of vanities, all is vanity, said Kohelet, right? And vanity is an abstraction, uh, and uh, the modern versions tend to substitute a different abstraction, uh, they render it as futility or something like futility, which is uh, approximately the sense of the Hebrew. But the Hebrew, again, uses a metaphor and a metaphor anchored in the body, like the, the, the nakedness we talked about a few minutes ago. 
That is, the Hebrew says, uh, and uh, I hewed closely to this in my translation, Merest breath, said Kohelet, all is mere breath. So there you have, again, a metaphor that uh, has to do with breathing. Uh, and it's a beautiful metaphor that, that, that is just as breath has no substance. You can't see it except maybe uh, the, the uh, vapor from breathing on a cold winter day and it dissipates immediately. That's what everything is. So, so I think that's really more powerful, but it's powerful as a particular kind of religious vision uh, and not a, a secular thing and not a purely literary thing. It's more powerful than the abstraction. It strikes me as also giving a lot more credence and making a lot more sense to the the problem in talking about Judaism to non-Jews and to Christians in particular, where when Judaism talks about things like resurrection or 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 or, or the afterlife, which is not the word that I mean, it tends to it doesn't have this sort of ethereal. Their angels, their souls wandering around. When 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 people rise up again, their bodies rise up again, and there's a real problem in Judaism in talking about what it would mean to for all of the souls to show up again after the Messiah comes, if that's what your denomination holds to. And if the Bible says and uses the language of souls, then that feels like a weird complaint. But but as you describe it, the Bible being so embodied, then the problem becomes uh, rooted and foundational to the text itself and not a theological puzzle that comes from the commentaries. Does, does, does that make sense? Yeah. Now, let me add something about a, a, a general view of translating ancient texts. That is, I'd like to take Homer for a minute. Um, Homer has uh, been given dozens of English versions maybe almost as many as the Bible. I, I haven't done a, a count on, on either of them. Now, until the 1950s, the early 1950s, English versions tended to render Homer more or less in the stylistic idiom of their particular age. Uh, the Victorian translations sound Victorian, the 18th century translations by, by uh, Pope and Dryden actually render Homer in rhyming couplets because they thought all narrative poetry had to be that. And uh, these translations have their virtues, but they, for example, Pope's Homer makes the the, uh, the Achaean warriors sound like English uh, squires. Hmm. Uh, in the early 1950s, I think it was, I don't remember the exact date, Richmond Latimer published a translation of the Iliad. Now, one could fault the translation. One could say that, that it's awkward at points, uh, that, that there are problems with the, the rhythm of the, the poetry. Uh, and, of course, it's been um, followed by many other translations whose uh, by people who feel that, that Richmond Latimer needs to be uh, replaced. But 
it was a watershed moment. I'll tell you how it was a watershed moment. Richmond Latimer recognized that this is archaic Greek poetry, poetry that goes back to the 700s before the Common Era, and uh, belongs to a, 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 a rough-hewn era that is very different from the 20th century when he was translating. And what he tried to do is to, to get the, um, uh, the archaic quality of the Greek into something that is at least a little bit uh, approximate in the English. And um, as I say, I think that, that that was a turning point in how we try to render ancient texts in English. And uh, I, I think I've tried to do something analogous with the Hebrew. So what's the difference, and I'll explain what I mean by this in a second, what's the difference between lessons learned and, for lack of a better term, your personal politics? And what I mean by this is as follows. In your introduction, you highlight uh, the Rebecca and the Well story and you spend a lot of time explaining how your account really shows how heroic her feeding the camels and other and, – and, and the people are or, uh, right. or, or giving them drinks. Uh, in the New York Times Magazine article uh, about the Bible, they spend uh, – you're quoted as talking about and they talk about – I think it's Hagar when she is expelled, when she and Ishmael are expelled and how this – Empathy is present that isn't present in a lot of a lot of texts. Right. This sounds, for lack of a better term, like feminism in action. This sounds like uh, a kind of empathy that that is representative of a certain moral point of view. Do you think that that stuff comes out of your own personal moral commitments, or do you think that the lessons of the second half of the 20th century and, and the beginning of the 21st century, that they just allow you to see things that maybe other people hadn't seen because feminism is much more widely dispersed amongst the culture. Yeah, I would say that the, the latter alternative is the accurate one. I don't think that my translation was driven in any way by my personal beliefs. What I tried to do was listen to the Hebrew and give a, an honest representation of what I thought was going on in the Hebrew in the English. Okay, l let me give you an example that may sound feminist and in one way it is, but, but uh, it was driven by something else. How do you translate the Hebrew word in the creation story that uh, is translated either as um, uh, man, which of course is gender inflected in English, as the feminists have reminded us repeatedly, or is translated <clears throat> as a personal name, uh, Adam, Adam. Now, it cannot be a, tr a personal name, so there's no Adam in my garden story. W why can't it be a personal name? because it has a definite article before it every time it's used, the Adam, okay? So what does it mean? Now, uh, 
the uh, I'll cite a verse that that many of your listeners will will remember from the um, creation story. Um, in the image of first, of all, I'll I'll just use the the Hebrew word. In the image of God, He created the Adam, male and female. He created them. Now, what does Adam mean here? You can't really translate it as man, because of what what immediately follows is male and female. So the story about Adam in Hebrew is that it's technically that it's grammatically masculine, but it's really not. A, it's really a gender neutral uh, term. So what I did, and here's a, a somewhat awkward compromise. I said, I can't translate it as man, so I will translate it as the human. Now that sounds a little bit, I'm afraid, like something <laughs> out of a science fiction narrative. Uh, but I, I felt I had to do it in order to be faithful to the Hebrew. Uh, and so you will find again and again the slightly awkward, uh, the human. I made an exception later in the Bible when there was something that was more or less proverbial in English, like um, uh, there is Adam and beast, the Lord rescues. So, you know, we, we have the, the, this, it's really a collocation, a, a kind of bound uh, connection of two terms, um, uh, man and beast, the Lord rescues. Hmm. So, right, so again, going back to the original point that using Adam in that way sounds like it's feminist influence, but it's actually grammatically influenced. And, it's, right. and, um, and, and not that one is better or worse than the other. So then it makes me wonder, for our listeners who haven't encountered the text yet, how jarring is this translation? And what I mean by that is uh, – generations, generations and generations of Jews have at one point in the cycle read the story of the binding of Isaac, the Akidah. When they read it in your translation, are they going to find it familiar? Are they going to find it foreign? When people read the story of Adam, uh, there are people who are going to glom onto this this notion of human and they're going to resist. And okay, that's a personality quirk. But in terms of sort of the stories that are so meaningful, how familiar will the experience of reading be to people or will it really feel like something fundamentally, profoundly new? I wouldn't I, – I think in some instances there will be little shocks that are profoundly new. Uh, maybe we, with uh, translating Adam in the creation story uh, as the human would be one. Another one w- would be that verse in Psalms where instead of soul, I, I come out with throat. Uh, but um, my intention wasn't to shock readers, but ra- rather to, uh, when necessary, when dictated by the, the Hebrew, to startle them into a new recognition. But 
Let me say something about uh, where my translation may be familiar. It's rather closer, at least in the uh, narrative prose, to the King James Version than all the modern uh, translations. That is, the modern translations throw out the baby, the beautiful baby with the bathwater, um, <clears throat> and they say, the King James guys had it wrong. We have to start from scratch uh, and do a, a, a new version which will reflect biblical scholarship. Sometimes I think that scholarship is imperfect. And uh, that will repackage everything, repackage the syntax, for example, so that it sounds like modern English. Now, that move in particular, I think, is badly misconceived. And uh, the King James Version, of course, following the, the order in which they thought God had dictated the words, uh, replicates a good deal of the Hebrew syntax, and, and that's part of the, the, the beauty of its rendering of the, the narrative prose. So there's a, a definite similarity between my version and the King James Version in that regard. And I, I have to tell you that a couple of times, I think not often, you know, when I translate, I try not to look at any other version until I have a draft of a chapter or a passage. And then if I'm unhappy w with a particular word choice or a phrase, I'll look at some of the other versions and see if somebody has come up with a word that's better than the one that I had thought of. <laughs> and a couple of times I discovered <clears throat> that I had, for a whole sentence, I had reinvented the King James Version. <laughs> do, do you think, to, to use an, another um, <clears throat> famous line, do you think that, that your translation is, is standing on the shoulder of giants, or do you think that the, the work that has been done, especially in recent years, makes you more like you're standing in the hole <laughs> dug by giants? I mean, to what extent is your work... Uh, the product of an advantage in hindsight, and to what extent is it is is it inhibited by the decisions that people made that that, that maybe you think were problematic? Uh, I think uh, I have uh, mostly strenuously ignored <laughs> the giants, <laughs> uh, strenuously diverged from what the modern scholars have uh, done with the text. And I have to say this. I made a little discovery a few years ago. The, the first thing I ever wrote on the Bible, I, I was trained as a scholar of modern comparative literature, was uh, a book on biblical narrative. And uh, I did ad hoc translations of passages that I analyzed in, in the body of that book. Now, about six or seven years ago, uh, I did a revised and slightly expanded version of the art of biblical narrative. And when I did, I was horrified by my translations. Mm. That is, I had more or less um, unreflectively followed the precedent of the modern versions. I figured, that well, these guys are formidable scholars, which they are, uh, so they must have gotten it right. Uh, and then I saw that they had gotten it wrong, and uh, I went my own way. 
And I think it's 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 worth emphasizing that this is this is no small change because if at least I understand the body of literature that that book was tremendously influential the the art of biblical narrative. So it's not like it's an obscure text where you made some changes, but you're revising a book that had a tremendous impact on the field. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think I didn't uh, since I, I'm not a pretentious person uh, and. Uh, when I wrote the book, I figured, well, I have some interesting <laughs> ideas on biblical narrative. I'll put them together in, in, in a book. And I, I didn't think that I, I was going to have a huge impact on the field. But apparently it has had that <laughs> impact. And uh, the book's been in continuous print for, I don't know, 38 years now, which is rather astonishing. Well, I, I suspect that that's going to be dwarfed by, by, by the biblical translation. And before we wind down, I do want to ask about one other aspect because in a certain sense, I think we're doing the work an injustice. It's not just a translation. It's a translation and a commentary. And so in addition to the, the, the biblical translation, for those people who are familiar with, with reading these kinds of books and, and the Bible, there are also the – Myriad footnotes explaining choices, elaborations on ideas and themes. And the question I want to ask, and, and this is an imprecise way of, of of asking it, but I suspect you'll know what I mean. Where's the line between translation and commentary? How much of the commentary is just explaining your choices and how much of the commentary is a more authoritative voice in terms of explaining ideas, explaining themes – as a translator, how much leeway does it give you to be a commentator? Well, uh, you know, Samuel Johnson once said that patriotism is the the last uh, refuge of a scoundrel, um, something that resonates with our own moment in, yes. in time and politics. Uh, I, I would borrow that and say that that commentary is the, the last refuge of a scoundrelly translator. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that is, the, the worst part of the, uh, or the least admirable part of my commentary is that sometimes when I, I couldn't get at a, a nuance or, or uh, an effect in the Hebrew, I explained what was going on in the Hebrew <clears throat> in my commentary. And that's, I suppose, an admission that the translation couldn't quite hack it at this point. <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> the, there is much in the, the commentary that needs to be said in order to enlighten readers on my translation choices. That is, for example, um, the uh, uh, the beginning of Ecclesiastes, which I cited before, well, many readers are going to be baffled by the merest breath instead of vanity of vanities or futility of futilities. So I felt that I um, <clears throat> owed it to the reader to explain why the Hebrew dictated this translation choice. But th there is something else that... that goes on in my commentary. When I set out to do this, I didn't think I was going to write a commentary. And I got maybe halfway through the first chapter of uh, Genesis, 
And I said to myself, hey, there are all kinds of things going on here that I would like to illuminate. Now, what does that mean? The, the uh, library shelves are full of commentaries on Genesis and all the other books of the Bible. Many of them very learned, many of them voluminous. Sometimes you get something like a 500-page uh, uh, commentary on a book like the Song of Songs, which is only eight short chapters right. in the, the Hebrew. Um, <clears throat> but these are not commentaries that pay any attention to the literary aspects of the Hebrew text, because that's nothing that the biblical scholars are trained in. So, <clears throat> I wanted, as a, a complement to my translation, to talk about things like the use of metaphor, uh, narrative point of view, the deployment of dialogue, and so forth. I. I have this one last question, although I sure. notoriously lie and ask more. But um, and it, it starts off as a naive question, but it goes like this: Do you really, when you're translating the Bible, start off with <laughs> Genesis chapter one, verse one, and just work your way through it? And if that's the case, or if it's anything like that, how often did you find yourself five books in and say? I got to go back. I got to go back to Genesis and change this. I'm now in Leviticus. I'm now in Numbers. But what I've learned now has made me change my mind about a choice that I made 200 pages earlier. How often does the process of going from A to Z make you go back and rethink where you've been before? I would say from time to time, but fairly infrequently. That That is... When I put together all my previously published uh, books of the Bible in translation with the ones which was about a third that, that I had never published before, and the main part of that was the prophets, of course, I went back to the beginning to, in order to assemble um, all those pages and reread everything carefully. And here and there, maybe once every 50 or 60 or 100 pages, I would come uh, across a word choice which uh, I thought I could do better with, so I, I would change that. And then, obviously, since I was making it into um, one, actually, three volumes that, that, that are boxed together, um, I wanted consistency. So... Uh, if I discovered that uh, I had later repeatedly used a particular English equivalent for a Hebrew term, and in Genesis it was rendered differently, I, I would change the Hebrew, the, uh, the the rendering in Genesis for the sake of consistency. But there wasn't a whole lot of that. I, I have the three-volume book. In fact, one of the things I was so excited about having you on the show was 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 it was an excuse to buy it. I already had the books of Moses, but um, but to have the the the, the complete um, collection, it's it's so beautifully packaged. It's so wonderful. For those people who are going to go out and get the book after this conversation, what advice would you give? Uh, 
when they encounter it for the first time? Do they just open it and read it like a novel? How does someone encounter your translation for the first time? Well, um, I would recommend to readers, it's a good question, to, to begin from the beginning of Genesis and read through straight to the end of Genesis and then read the first part of Exodus up to the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments is around chapter 19. Um, then there, there, there are many um, technical laws that may not be of interest to, to general readers. Um, I would, um, it might be a, a kick for readers to jump on to some poetic books mm -hmm. like Psalms, uh, Job, uh, Proverbs, the Song of Songs. Uh, so I don't think you have to read the whole thing in order. And um, I would then definitely recommend the, um, the narrative stretch from <clears throat> the beginning of, uh, let's say, the beginning of Judges to the beginning of the Book of Kings, which in, has wonderful stories and incorporates, uh, among other things, what I think is one of the greatest pieces of narrative art that can't, has come out of the whole ancient world, and that's the David story, mm -hmm. which is basically uh, the Book of Samuel and the first couple of chapters of Kings. Well, I am super excited for all of that. I know personally I am very excited. I haven't read yet your translation of Job and, and I really, really want to. Robert, this has been such a pleasure and it really has given me an opportunity to see not just the process but the book itself in, in, in a very different way and I'm incredibly grateful for the time you spent and I'm incredibly grateful for the project that you completed. So thank you for that and thank you for joining us on Why. Well, it's been enjoyable speaking with you, Jack. And uh, I hope your listeners will enjoy it as well. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Robert Alter on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Robert Alter about his translation and commentary of the Hebrew Bible. How do you encounter the Hebrew Bible in a new way? How do you get past your perceptions, your biases, your histories, your prejudices, your resistances? How do you do that with a book that is just so important that it's worth taking not just a second, a third, a fourth, or a fifth, but a twelfth and a twentieth look. One way is to read a new translation. 
And I'm inclined to agree with Robert here. I think the translations of the last 50 years or so have been very unsatisfying. I don't like the tendency to make the hipster Bible and I don't like the tendency to make a Bible that caters to a denomination. I want the literary wisdom and the literary rhythms of the people who came before me. And I will tell you after reading Genesis straight through as a novel, I am in awe of this book. It is so beautiful. It is so compelling. It is so interesting. But it's also challenging because it forced me, as I think it will encourage you, to ask deep philosophical questions about what it means to read this text, what it means to learn from this text, but also if you look at the commentary, what it means to think about this text as a translation, what it means to think of this text as a connection to a people who spoke a different language in a different way. Is the Bible a sacred scriptural text? Is the Bible just a literary treasure that we should value? Well, in the parlance of the internet, why not both? Reading it one way or the other does not preclude taking another look in a different way. Experiencing the Bible as literature does not prevent you from treating it as religion and treating it as religion does not prevent you from reading it as literature. The Bible has been rich enough to survive for millennia in one form or another. And now in 2019, we have a brand new translation that puts together all of the insights of the people who have come before us and shares a particular literary point of view. That is worth attending to. That is worth looking at. Robert isn't here to tell you how to worship. Robert isn't here to tell you how to think about God. Neither am I. But what he does suggest is that you can look at the Bible in a certain way. The Hebrew Bible is worth looking at with attention to the original language, the original history, and the original context. That is a gift and it is worth pursuing. Again, I read it, I'm in love with it, and I encourage you to do the same. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>